my wife is a very senior uh, executive at a, a large technology finance firm. Now, she grew up as a Latina, um, you know, Hispanic American in the South, and she didn't grow up with stories of Latin people or women, mm. you know, yeah. achieving, you know, and so we need to tell more stories about women. We need to tell more stories about um, immigrants. We need to tell more stories about um, minorities, right? The stories we tell, tell our children, tell ourselves what's possible. And when we don't tell these stories of these internal innovators, I think psychologically what we're doing is we are repressing the sense of possibility among people that, uh, among employees, you know, and there are eight to 10 times as many employees as there are entrepreneurs in the world. Um, we're telling them you're not the innovator. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Hub podcast. This is your host, Agnes Uheretsky, and I want to take this opportunity to wish all of you a wonderful, happy new year, as it's this is the first uh, podcast of 2020 and approximately our 130th podcast, but I have to tell you that I lost count. So um, diving in, in this first uh, podcast of this year, I have a very special guest with me today, Dr. Kaihan Krippendorf. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for, for joining me on this uh, first podcast. Uh, I'm very, very eager to, to have this conversation and very excited because uh, Dr. Krippendorf has uh, published a book uh, in 2019, which is called The Employee Innovator, Driving Innovation from Within. It's published by Columbia University Press, and it's a a, a book full of fantastic stories. I have to say that when somebody tells you to read a book about innovation, I get a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. <laughs> um, but but it's incredibly fluid. It's very easy to read. It's it's really um, you, you want to read on and you want to dive into these stories of Olivetti and IKEA and uh, different companies because Dr. Krippendorf interviewed 150. Uh, organizations and innovators, uh, mm -hmm. internal innovators for the book. So before we actually um, dive in and, and discuss uh, your research and the interviews and the stories and the lessons of your book, just a few words of, of introduction. So Kaihan is the founder of the growth strategy consulting firm OutThinker. Before that, he was a McKinsey consultant and he's also the author of four business strategy books. Uh, Kaihan specializes in serving financial service, technology, retail firms who recognize the need to move away from traditional models to embrace agile digital strategies for an ever-changing world. Um, you began your career, as, uh, as I said, with McKinsey Company, and then you, you founded OutThinker. And you also uh, wrote and published four books. The latest one is the Employee Innovator that we're going to be discussing. And you also founded and facilitate something called the OutThinker Roundtables, 
which is an invitation-only group of high-level strategists and innovators for large, successful organizations. You're also a regular keynote speaker. There are quite a few uh, keynotes and also TED Talks with you on YouTube, so I highly recommend anybody listening here to go and check them out. Um, and also, in 2019, you've been uh, invited to join the prestigious Thinkers 50 class of 2019 Radar Group, which is a global selection of the top 30 management thinkers to follow and hear from in the coming years. So that's all extremely exciting. And uh, again, I'm very, very uh, honored to have you on the podcast. So before we go into the book, how did you um, transition from consulting to founding your founding your own company? And, and what was it that triggered your interest in um, looking into closely more into these employee innovators? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, so, yeah, I started my career in strategy and that has for a long time been a passion of mine. And I think that stems from uh, my father, who's German. He was uh, when I was young, he took a trip to Japan and he came back with some books on Zen and um, Zen koans, and I sort of got interested in this genre, which led me to Sun Tzu and the and um, and this genre of strategy books. And so, from a very young age, I also practiced martial arts. I was interested in strategy and, and thinking, right? Um, you know, so that led me to uh, pursue a career in strategy. Um, and my first two books were really kind of about creative strategy. I took these um, Chinese strategic patterns and showed how you could use them as an ideation exercise to generate innovative ideas, strategic ideas, you know, more kind of, if you think of a strategy as coming up with an idea and then selecting an idea and then, and then pursuing it, how do you come up with the idea? Where do the big ideas come from? And I really fell in love with that question. Uh, I left McKinsey when I wrote my first book and first of all, it made sense that I would need to quit my job in order to do what I really loved or that I was really passionate about, which in this book I'm seeking to disprove now. Uh, but also <laughs> I, I wanted to uh, do this ideation work. And so I was, uh, it took a, a long time, um, sometimes for free, I would go to companies and just say, can I do an ideation workshop for you and uh, over lunch and, 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 I, and, and over the next three, four, five, six years, I built this methodology for ideating. Um, but, you know, I found that the ideas when you ideate within an established company, they often go nowhere, right? They mm-hmm. often hit this bureaucracy, the culture, oh, the company's you know, big and slow. And I was started to feel a little bit like a, far, a fraud, if you will, mm-hmm. because I was sort of telling people, hey, we can help you come up with really big ideas. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, but in order to really pursue them, you'll probably have to quit your job the way, uh, the way I did. Um, so, you know, strategy innovation is my area. But then I got really interested in the question, not where do the ideas come from, which is what I've been really interested in until this point, but where do they go? How does an idea go to, re- to, to the reality? Yeah. It reminds me... Of two things. One is that, um, you know, when we go to um, inspiring conferences or events, 
we come home, you know, with all these ideas and inspiration and then, you know, next day you go back to your desk and that's it. Yes. yes. <laughs> you put the conference folder into your drawer and, and then you never revisit that again or very rarely. Um, mm -hmm. But also it, it, it reminds me of um, when we work with organizations and we sometimes feel like unless there is a clear commitment from management to change, you know, the system uh, in mm -hmm. which employees are that will allow them more employee well-being, that will offer better work-life balance. Is it still worth going in and poking the bear <laughs> a little bit, what? you know, waking it up? Or do we cause them even more frustration? So I think that resonates with me, what you're saying. Like, do I go in and unleash all these wonderful ideas and then people go back to their desks and that's it, right? Right. And I, and I, I think it's really, I really appreciate the way that you're framing it. Because um, what I hear in what you're saying is not, I have a good idea. Can we convince leadership to commit to it? But underneath what you're saying, I'm kind of hearing, and this is what I believe, is it is a good idea in part if there is a commitment to realize the idea, right? It's sort of like if you have a, a, a product and you know it's a great product, but your customers don't want it, is it a great product? Yeah. And when we apply that now inside an organization, this is one of the big kind of mental shifts that I found in interviewing these successful internal innovators is they view the organization as a customer. And the idea is not a good idea if it will not generate support and resonance from the organization. Just like a product won't be a good product if it doesn't resonate with the customer. And I wonder also whether you believe, or is, is that your experience because that's something that I speak a lot about on the podcast is the importance of trust and organizations where you have trusting relationships. Whereas in a fear-based organization, I would imagine that, that that is also something that hampers um, employees' willingness to you know, step out with an idea, expose themselves, make themselves vulnerable you know, what the hell are you doing? You should be focusing on your job and not daydreaming about this or that, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, that, yeah you're absolutely right. You know, the, um, you know the, the, the idea of psychological safety and when that is present is very fundamental to creating an organization that allows innovation to happen. Um, and it kind of works in like three, in two different levels. At the individual level, uh, research into entrepreneurial intention, which is before you take an entrepreneurial action, there has to be the intention to take that action. What creates or holds back that intention? Uh, it's one of three conversations. These are sort of limiting beliefs. Uh, one is it's not possible here. Another one is it might be possible here, but I'm not capable, self-efficacy. But the third one is what will this social reaction be? What will people say? And so if we have a culture where someone proposes an idea and the reaction is, uh, you know, laughter or teasing or anything negative, it very quickly removes the intention mm. 
and stops the flow of ideas at the source. Wow, this is fascinating. And may I just jump on this <laughs> for a second? I know that sure, this is a sure. bit all over the place. But, um, I, you know, when we speak about psychological safety or bullying in organizations or employee well-being, there's more and more evidence that a lot of training should focus on bystanders. So I also wonder whether, you know, not um, exclusively focusing on the innovators or the potential entrepreneurial thinkers inside the company, but also installing a kind of a culture where if your colleague is going to tell you something in the coffee break, you know, stop and think before you laugh out loud or ridicule right. or belittle, right? Because right. you don't know right. what kind of a brilliant idea you may stop in their tracks. Right. Yeah. No idea. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm misquoting someone that I don't remember the name of, but something like, like no good idea appeared to be a good idea at the onset. Um, if you, if you, if you want to kill off a new idea, you just ask someone to prove it and just any new idea fundamentally is not going to be founded by past experience. And so if we look at past experience, we look at past laws, rules, um, beliefs, right? It, they will very likely be in conflict with, with, with the idea. When I, when I do my ideation sessions, I can spot that very quickly is, and, and I try to nip that in the, in the bud. We'll have, you know, you typically, I don't know, 10 or 15 tables of five or 10 people and they're ideating. And as I go around, you can see when teams have lots of ideas, it's because they've created a, a culture where it's okay to share an idea that you think might be laughed at, that you, you know, m m might not be fully formed and, and defensible. And, you know, I just try to, with regardless of what the idea is, I just try not to react. I just take the idea and write it down and, and let it be there. Mm. Excellent. You know, when somebody would think, okay, innovation, another book about innovation, there's, I, I believe that there is so much media attention and just plain old celebrating of these, you know, lone innovators who drop out of college and then who have a brilliant idea and then they go into their garage in California and then they come up with this big thing that's going to be, you know, a big company. Um, but, you know, according to your research, only eight out of the 30 biggest innovations in the past decades were by entrepreneurs and other by, by employees. So, yes. um, are these unsung heroes? Don't we know about them? I think it would be the benefit to more organizations and in general, the public, if we would somehow find them or speak about them or elevate them so that even people working in organizations can feel maybe more comfortable about themselves. So saying, okay, I haven't quit college. I haven't, you know, busted out of here and created a company, but I can contribute. I, I could bring value. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think that was the finding that really put me on the hunt to finish this book. You know, five years ago when I looked at this, that if we if we go back and you know look at the source of the big innovations, and I'm not talking about search, I'm not talking about Facebook. I'm I'm talking about 
the internet that all of those are based off. I'm talking about stents or DNA sequencing. I'm talking about email. I'm talking about mobile phones, the big innovations that really have been transformative. And as you mentioned, only eight of the 30 were born out of entrepreneurs. And, and what that means is if we, if it were not possible for employee innovators to innovate, you would live in a world without a mobile phone and without an internet and without email. And if you got sick, you couldn't get an MRI, you couldn't get a stent, we wouldn't have fiber optics, we wouldn't have PCs, um, microprocessors. Um, we would live in a radically inferior world. And the reason that I'm so passionate about flipping this narrative, because as you said, when you look at lists of most innovative people, they all follow this remarkably similar path. And if you break down that path, the, the garage you talked about, you know, that's the cave in the hero's journey where, you know, the lone, you know, hero goes into the cave and then comes out changed, right? It is just a really compelling story to tell. And the reason that I think we really need to flip this narrative is that the stories that we tell, tell people what is possible. My wife is a very senior uh, executive at a, a large technology finance firm. Now, she grew up as a Latina, um, you know, Hispanic American in the South, and she didn't grow up with stories of Latin people or women, mm. you know, yeah. achieving, you know, and so we need to tell more stories about women. We need to tell more stories about um, immigrants. We need to tell more stories about um, minorities, right? The stories we tell, tell our children, tell ourselves what's possible. And when we don't tell these stories of these internal innovators, I think psychologically what we're doing is we are repressing the sense of possibility among people that uh, among employees, you know, and there are eight to 10 times as many employees as there are entrepreneurs in the world, um, we're telling them, you're not the innovator. And what that means is, whatever the next internet is, whatever the next uh, MRI is, we don't know what that is, but that's gonna come from an employee, probably. 70% chance. And if we don't have that employee looking for it, feeling like it's possible, you know, we are all going to lose out as a society. And, you know, this just made me think about those different hashtags um, that are used, you know, Blue Monday and Wednesday Hump and, you know, so much negative framing of life as an employee. Mm -hmm. uh, thank God it's Friday. So maybe we should do something like hashtag Innovator Thursday. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, yes, to, 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 yes. To, to encourage. And, and you know, I, I like when you were saying, you know, what would we have without, you know, these great innovations? What kind of world would be living in? And just instantly made me think of your the story in your book about Ikea and how, you know, just one employee who couldn't fit the table while delivering it to a client to a customer, you know, just unscrewed the, the, the legs. And that's how this whole flat backing, uh, business model, uh, uh, was born. And, um, you know, what kind of world would we live in if we would have to buy our Ikea furniture, you know, <laughs> assembled? Right, right, right. 
And, and, and what I love about that case is it, it wasn't Igvar Kamprad that developed that idea. He saw the solution and he picked it and, and you know, and, and, and helped the company adopt it. But that didn't come to be until 10 years into IKEA's uh, founding. Um, these innovations happen throughout the, you know, th- th- you know o- over time. It's not the, the founder and it's not the founder's initial idea. The iPhone, you know, wasn't the original idea. Uh, Amazon Web Services was not the original idea. And those ideas also came from employees. And w- when you were doing your research and interviewing these organizations and these internal innovators, um, were you exclusively looking at large corporations or also trying to find small companies? So um, I w- was really looking for any case that I could find um, because it is so hard to find these internal innovators. They, they, it's more that they're running a relay race and they don't get to finish the line. So, you know, where did the flat pack box come from? You know, the, the immediate thought will be, oh, it came from Ikea, this nameless, faceless, like, uh, you know, thing that, you know, company, or we assign it to the leader or the founder, uh, but it's hard to find them. So I, I had difficulty doing a kind of bottom up identification of, um, of, of, of these innovators. Instead, I just started the journey of finding one and then asking for another and asking for another and collecting them. Um, but I did do an analysis, a, a, a top down analysis from, of corporations that have appeared on the most innovative lists. Um, and what I looked at was of the 360 odd companies that have appeared on most innovative lists in the last five years, um, what you find is that very few of them actually perform better than their peers. So what that means for me is they do things that look innovative, but those innovations are not being adopted in the market and thereby not showing uh, superior performance. And there are only 13 companies that, um, that do. And th- those tend to be big, bigger companies um, that make the list. And um, of those 13 companies, maybe the smallest one is Netflix um, that is both an innovator and outperformer. Now, going back to um, more the micro level or the organizational level, um, of your research about uh, employee innovators. Uh, in your research, did you find some common elements of uh, this enabling environment that managers or um, leadership can create to foster this innovating behavior, but also what I just learned from you, the, the innovating, um, what was it, uh, the entrepreneurial intuition, <laughs> first and foremost, um, or, or are there also some common barriers that you identified that uh, leaders need to remove to allow to clear the path, so to speak, of these innovators? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I found there are two different things we could uh, talk about. Um, one is I looked at every research report I could find where that showed a statistically significant correlation between some organizational attribute and higher levels of internal innovation. And actually there's quite a bit that's known and a lot of what we think is true is unvalidated and some things that are validated we don't realize are true. And But if you take these, they cluster into talent, 
like what kind of talent do you need? Um, organizational structures, culture, and leadership. And these sets of these four sets of drivers are kind of the way that I think you can build the right organization. And then when you look at it, that's when you're looking for the top down. When you look at from the bottom up, from the the employee innovator, we find that there are seven barriers that they face that are the most common barriers. So I asked each of these 150 people, what do you see as the most critical barrier to driving innovation from within? And how did you overcome that? And there were seven barriers that emerge um, as you know frequently cited. And so I kind of lay that out as a as a framework or journey. Um, so we can talk about either of those. And was, was there one or two barriers that were particularly surprising for you? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, uh, we talked about intent that, you know, many people have just given up. I think that, um, the, I, I won't go through all of them, but kind of, no, the, no. The, but, the, but need, I'm, I'm happy to, but, um, you know, under need, what's interesting is that a lot of people don't understand what the organization needs. So there's a big gap between um, understanding what the customer needs and overlaying that with what the corporate strategy is. So that's something that's easy for someone to uh, kind of get their heads around is what does the thinking about the organization as a, as a, as a customer. Um, but I think the one that I think is most interesting is I, I call it value blockers, which is that when you have a new innovative idea, there's a natural business model around that idea, how you'll price it, how you distribute it, what the branding would look like, um, how you reach your customers. And each of those business model choices could create what I call a value blocker with your existing business model. Because unlike an entrepreneur who can design any business model around the idea, you are building a business model inside a business model. And so where many people get frustrated is this idea of the organs getting rejected. Like we're doing a transplant and the bigger organizations rejecting the organ and kind of throw up our hands and say, oh, well, it's just not possible. Um, but the difference is that you can cleverly and what these internal innovators seem to do is they cleverly predict where the value blockers will be like, oh, our we, we need to sell this to a certain type of customer. And that's not the type of customer that our salespeople visit right now. So what if we change the idea so that we were selling it to our current customer rather than trying to get a new customer? And if you make a few of these smart choices in business model that you, you can significantly reduce the chance of the idea being rejected. And would you say that... Um or did the interviewees, these employee innovators, tell you about, you know, counterintuitive ideas? Um, because that somehow, you know, I always feel that what, what, what you just said at the beginning, that if it's an innovative idea, it should somehow feel wrong at the beginning. <laughs> like, okay, this is so out of whack. This is not going to work here for our customers, our company. What is this? Um, so did they, you know, did they manage to, so I, I guess, yes, go, go through these different value blockers, but, but also get their counterintuitive ideas somehow through and, and, and show that, yes, we could, yeah, this, this will work. I'm, 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 I have to tell you that I'm a little bit under the influence of Dan Ariely's book about, um, 
predictable irrationality about you know how we're irrational and just somehow I imagine it you know with your McKinsey background and strategy that it's all very formal it's a very streamlined we have a strategy the big Titanic is going this way we know where it's steering and then pops up a kind of an ant or you know a little mouse innovator with this totally new or different way of, of doing that can really turn these big ships somehow steer course or branch out um, using a lot of metaphors here maybe too many <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I think the you know um for, for I, I don't think an idea needs to be uh, an innovative idea doesn't need to replace necessarily it can still fit into the the system you know just like you know um um you know the you know the theory of scientific revolutions um where there's a, a new theory that replaces the old theory and that ultimately creates a shift in paradigm i don't think that innovations need to be shifts in paradigm all the time they can work alongside the existing but they often will nevertheless seem strange almost by definition because for me an innovation needs to have three criteria it needs to have a surprise factor look different um it has to be adopted and then it has to be valuable. And so what will happen is, and this is, to try to explain this succinctly, is that if the idea makes it through the organization into the market, if it turns out to be disruptive, then what you will see is that competitors will, be, will resist responding, right? Typically, Traditional strategic theory says competitors won't respond because they can't. Your competitive advantage comes from doing something your competitors can't do. But we know this is not true, right? Blockbuster could have done Netflix. Yahoo could have done Google. Kodak could have done the digital camera. Right, right. So if you want your competitors not to, uh, choose to not copy you, what you're really going to do is put something out that they will choose not to do. And it's a slight change of phrase, but it makes all the difference because now what you have is you recognize that what makes the idea potentially disruptive is that it's inconsistent with what has been done before, which is what will make people ignore it. Gandhi says, uh, he said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. All innovators talk about this need to create something that competitors will ignore and laugh at. And so the dilemma of innovation is that if your competitors will ignore and laugh at the idea, your colleagues in your organization, having grown up in the same industry with the same set of beliefs, they will naturally ignore and laugh at the idea. Now, the ways there are ways to get around that. One way is to start taking action on the idea without asking for permission. And that's a pattern that we see very often someone does an inexpensive, small experiment without asking for permission in order to generate the data that supports the idea or test the idea. And then pulling together a team without getting a formal team assigned to you um, is another pattern that we see in order to kind of trick the organization to open up to the idea. So by the time the organization is actually judging the idea, you already have a team taking action on the idea. Absolutely, because you mentioned also that you were surprised that 
you know, it wasn't that they had an idea and then they did a business case and then they got a budget and a team, but, you know, they kind of went out and just, just started doing that. They felt like this was, I don't know if you can say employee loyalty or employee engagement, but they felt they were convinced that this is something for the benefit of their organization, of their employer, and then just that's what they thought was part of doing a good job. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And they did it in service of the organization, and um, they understood that the organization wouldn't immediately uh, embrace it. This is the whole uh, uh, act, learn, build approach, the experiment, agile testing, um, versus the prove, plan, execute approach, uh, which is what many established organizations are rooted in. Um, but, you know, the, the, I forget his name, but the gentleman that created the uh, London tube map, he, his idea was at the time, all of the maps of the tube were geographically correct, as if you're looking from above. And so if there were two stations that were far apart from each other, they were far apart on the map. But when you're underground, that information is not helpful to you. So he came up with what we now know as the London Tube. But he just kept getting rejected. He would do he would develop a uh, a, um, a map on his own time, and he presented it to his bosses, and he was rejected. And each time he was rejected, however, he got information about why they rejected it, and he went back and took that information, then improved the map. And then improve the map. And eventually he convinced them to print, I forget how many they were, uh, a thousand copies. I'm just making this up, but just as illustration. And just to try it out, and the London tube, uh, you know, um, the, the, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the, you know, the Londoners, they snatched them up and they were, they, they ran out very quickly. And so then they printed more. So they, he used the feedback he got from leadership as if he was getting feedback from customers, yes. from the commuters, and then, yeah. Yes, and, and the same thing you would do as an entrepreneur, right? If you had a product and, you, and your customers aren't adopting, you put it out there and get the feedback and improve it. Um, but your company, your, your, your boss, your managers, they are also your customer. Mm, fantastic. Well, Kaihan, I'm really enjoying this conversation, but unfortunately, the time is going <laughs> way too fast. So sl slowly, we have to make our way to, to the last question. But before we do that, would you mind telling listeners um, where they can um, find out more about your work, where they can find out more about the book, where they can order the book, um, or how they could get in touch with you? Probably the best one place to go is to... The website kaihan.net, which is my first name, K-A-I-H-A-N.net. And there you can get links to the book and contact me and links to um, my blogs, things like that. Excellent. So um, going to the last question, which is always the same on the Work Life Up podcast. If I could ask you, Kaihan, to give an, just one advice to CEOs and leaders um, about fostering growing, um, stimulating um, employee innovators, what would be your advice? That's a big question because I'm so deep into it, right? Um, but I, <laughs> This I, is the I, point I, where I yeah, get guests yeah. negotiating for yeah. three advices. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I would say one thing. I would say if, if there's one thing, 
I would say, stop seeing your customers as your customers and instead see your employees as your customers and everything else will line up. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciated this conversation. I have to say congratulations on your book. It's incredibly well written. It's very easy to read, but incredibly informative. And I'm sure it will inspire many organizations to to just improve that kind of environment where these uh, internal innovators can really thrive. So thank you very much and really the best of success with your work and the book. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be to speak to you.